Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. I am privileged to be joined today by Dr. Chrissy Stroop. Uh, Chrissy Stroop holds a Ph.D. in Russian history from Stanford and is an outspoken uh, former evangelical, uh, well-known analyst, commentator, and podcaster addressing a wide range of issues related to discussions of evangelicalism in this country. Chrissy writes for Playboy, for Rewire, dot, uh, dot, uh, Rewire News Online, uh, for Foreign Policy, and many other outlets. Uh, Chrissy is also the co-editor uh, with Lauren O'Neill of a new book titled Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church, uh, which is due out in December, but uh, people can get pre-orders of it now. And it details uh, 21 stories of people leaving uh, uh, different kinds of traditions like evangelicalism, uh, Catholicism, Mormonism. And so I want to begin, um, Chrissy, by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Dan. Yeah. Now, on this podcast, we, uh, Brad and I, have talked at length about the social cost of nonconformity within evangelical circles. And Mm -hmm. our listeners will be familiar with our own stories. We've shared those. Um, So your upcoming book will be really relevant to that. I want to come back to that um, and sort of hold that in reserve and, and get a chance to talk about that. Before, sure. before we jump into that, what I wanted to talk about is your recent writing on evangelical support for Israel and their belief about, uh, I wish people could see air quotes on the radio, right, uh, about end times. And mm-hmm. we, we recently did an episode talking about some of these issues. We discussed how evangelical fascination with Israel is, is kind of based on a kind of abstraction by which we meant a certain conception of what Israel is, who Jewish people are, etc., but it, it's often far removed from any real encounter with Israel or Jewish people or the Jewish tradition. And you say something similar uh, in a piece that you wrote recently, and I wanted to quote you uh, as sort of a way of starting this discussion and throw it over to you. But you said, uh, you posed this question, you said, can evangelical support for Israel really be equated to love for the Jews? In my view, the idea is nonsensical on its face, and it's impossible, for, uh, excuse me, as it's impossible for anyone to love an entire people, which is, after all, an abstraction. For authoritarian evangelicals, however, the term love is often applied to abstract situations in which evangelicals' responses are dictated by specific theological scripts. It's the the end of the quote. And so, sort of a, let me just toss out a few questions there and have you respond as you will. In your view, Mm -hmm. what is going on when evangelicals say they they love Israel? What is this theological script uh, that they're running why do you think it's possible for so many evangelicals to say that they, they love Israel yet harbor arguably anti-Semitic theological views? For example, that Jewish people have to become Christian to be acceptable to God. So I, I throw it over to you. What, what do you think is going on with these kinds of claims, and what are those theological scripts that, that you think are running that you mentioned in, in your piece? Sure. Well, uh, first let me start with saying that um, my piece, it was, it was one of two pieces. You quoted from a piece I published in uh, Religion Dispatches, right. which followed on a piece I published in The Forward, an op-ed for The Forward, um, and it, it simply filled in some more uh, details that I thought were significant and important, but I wasn't able to get to in that uh, initial op-ed for the forward. But both of them are a response to uh, a lawyer writing under the pseudonym of Jarvis Best and uh, also 
to um, some, some other people who have been attempting to whitewash um, the toxic side of Christian Zionism, to pretend that, well, Christian Zionism is just fine. Um, this Jarvis Best literally said that we should take evangelicals, or he said we should take Christians, including evangelicals, love for Jews at face value. And that statement just floored me, because what does it mean to say, I love the Jews, right? And so that's where I started looking at um, it, at the whole thing through this framework of the kinds of abstractions and theological scripts uh, that evangelicals map onto the world in what I like to call a politics of providentialism. So they're looking for, uh, you know, signs, signs of the times uh, when it comes to the apocalypse and all of that. But in general, they're, they're looking for uh, some things that they can identify, uh, according to their way of thinking anyway, as the uh, implementation of God's will, God's plan in history and in current events. And so for most American evangelicals, the establishment of the modern state of Israel is um, a major fulfillment of prophecy. Right. Uh, right, because... Um, the way that they view the end times, they think that uh, they're reading, according to their reading of the Bible, uh, a modern state of Israel had to be established, the temple has to be rebuilt. So for these reasons, of course, they, uh, they support a really aggressive sort of right-wing Netanyahu, Likud-type version of Israel, or, you know, even to the right of that. I mean, they would, they would love to see um, a strictly Jewish state take over all of Jerusalem and so forth, uh, and even raise the third holiest site in Islam so they can rebuild the temple. So, um, you know, to actually act on, on this, on the geopolitical stage, like Donald Trump has done by moving uh, our embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, right. is extremely destabilizing. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, um, when, we, when we talk about theological scripts, arguably being anti-Semitic, of course, um, all of Orthodox Christianity, little o Orthodox, uh, throughout the history of Christianity, uh, has a theology of supersessionism, right. which um, I think is anti-Semitic. Um, some, you know, some scholars, including Jewish scholars like Daniel Byron, would be a little kinder on that and say that at least when it comes to Paul himself, Byron wrote a really interesting book about Paul. Uh, he calls it theological anti-Judaism. And makes a distinction and absolves Paul of anti-Semitism, uh, which is a very interesting argument to make. But in any case, you know, the idea is that there's an old covenant and a new covenant, and, um, you know, God has moved on to the new covenant, and today's Jews have refused to do the same, so they're uh, living in rebellion to God's plan, and the whole rabbinic tradition since the time of Christ is just erased. It's not, it's not important to evangelicals. I mean, the Jews in their head are, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, imaginary, and they exist to fulfill God's plan. Yeah, I, I think you made a really interesting point. Um, I think there are a few points there worth sort of playing on. One is, <coughs> excuse me, you're right when people talk about like the history of Christianity, and we, we, we all know that the what emerges as Christianity emerges out of Judaism and so forth. And so those discussions about sort of these these kind of founding figures like Paul or Jesus of Nazareth himself or those early disciples are of interest, but certainly after a period of time when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and there is no uh, Jewish temple anymore, 
and Second Temple Judaism comes to an end, and Christianity becomes the Roman religion, and very you know very predominantly Gentile. I think from that time forward, there's there's very little debate, right, about what, what you're describing as a supersessionism, which, for those who may not be familiar with that term, it's just that notion that those who practice Judaism and don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah are fulfilling God's kind of old covenant, and they're, they're not understanding the sort of fullness of the, the full plan of God, and, and so far sort of outside of God's will. I think you're, you're right. Once once you make that shift in like the third, fourth century, there's not much argument to be made. Um that that's not a, a part of, as you say, small Orthodox Christianity. I think you also make a, an interesting point that I, w- I would like to sort of just touch on, right, that you'll often hear evangelicals talk about support for Israel, but one of the ways that I think this is an abstraction, or as you describe it as kind of imaginary, is it, it often ignores all of the, the messy, real-life, day-to-day politics of the state of Israel, right, that you have mm-hmm. multiple political parties in Israel, right? Jewish majority political parties, some of which are really secular, um, some of which are are much more religious and favor uh, that, that kind of uh, right-wing religious view, some of which favor uh, annexation and expansion in the occupied territories, as you're describing, right, the Likud party and Netanyahu and so mm-hmm. forth, in this this vision of reclaiming, uh, you know, the, the sort of Israel of Davidic times, uh, the landmass of that. But, of course, you have other Israeli parties that oppose that. You have minority parties in Israel, and you have Arab political parties. And, you know, so I think part of what you're highlighting, and I'm glad that you highlight it, right, is that that's part of what makes this such an imaginary appeal is there's this this image of a kind of Israel of the Bible that's just sort of transported into the 21st century now and applied to this this state, right, a, a, a geopolitical mm-hmm. state, as if there's a one-to-one correspondence. And I, for me, that's sure. one of the things that makes it that kind of imaginary, abstract notion, is it ignores all of those complexities, that there are plenty of Jewish people in Israel and and Jewish mm-hmm. people outside of Israel, right, who oppose those, and yet that evangelical discourse sort of smooths right over that. Yeah, of course, according to Trump, they're disloyal Jews, and I'm sure that yeah, <laughs> right. uh, you know, the evangelicals are perfectly happy to agree with that comment for the most part. But yeah, I mean, the thing about this politics of providentialism is that it imagines that there can be callings not just for individual people, but also for nations. Um, it's, um, you know, for some Christian intellectuals of the 20th century, it's sort of a Christianization of Hegelianism, but I think it's also older than that. And, yeah. you know, maybe Hegelianism itself is a sort of inflection of Christian eschatology. Uh, but there's this whole idea that certainly post-Hegel is very much influenced by Hegel, that nations act in history uh, like persons, sort of. Uh, I mean, you could also trace it back to Hobbes, so obviously it's a kind of... It's a kind of old idea, um, but this idea that that a nation, um, you know, can have a divine calling—it's it's an idea that naturally elides complexity. And right, uh, right. authoritarian thinkers, uh, of course, are are averse to complexity, so they like these these kinds of frameworks. Um, and you know, I've also seen this kind of rhetoric in relation to the mission field, and um, I tell my own story about doing two short-term mission trips to Russia in 1999 and 2000 um, in the Empty the Pews anthology that's coming out December 1st, and um, how 
observing missionary activity and being a part of it contributed to my deconstruction because that's a whole other messy can of worms. But, you know, one of the things I noticed about missionaries is they like to say things like, well, I just love the Russian people. And, you know, already 19, 20-year-old me is like, what does that mean? That right. doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it makes you feel good about yourself, but you can't speak a lick of Russian. You, know, you don't understand the culture at all or its many complexities, and, you know, you you read some essentializing stuff, and you think you understand the Russian soul. Yeah. It, so you, you've kind of talked—you you just introduced a couple things I want to come back to, and you've kind of talked about this, um, mentioned, you know, eschatology and, and so forth. And I want to talk about this, so just to sort of remind people, right, if, if I can give my, like, thumbnail sketch of kind of majority evangelical end-time beliefs. It's this view that at some point in the future, usually presented as kind of the imminent future, could happen at any moment, Jesus of Nazareth is going to physically return to Earth. There's going to be this cosmic climactic battle in which God is going to destroy God's enemies, redeem the Christian faithful who have remained faithful to him, and and set up sort of a, a new kingdom and so forth, right? And so that that's part of what we're talking about. So here's why... Well, yeah, except yeah. that you kind of skipped over the rapture, which I think most American evangelicals still believe in, although I also think we're seeing some indications that belief in the rapture um, may be waning. But that's the idea that Christ appears in the sky believers up to heaven first, you know. Right, so they, they get to miss, I, I was I was actually going to strategically come back around to it, but you're, you're too <laughs> sharp, no, it's all right, you're too sharp to let me, yeah, that, that this, uh, that there'll be this, this awful period on earth in this conflict called the tribulation, and the, the sort of dominant evangelical view has been, and as you say, it's a bit murky what the status is, that those faithful Christians, by which evangelicals mean evangelicals, will be taken up and kind of rescued from that before that happens. They won't have to go through any of that nasty stuff. The the, the question yeah, I was... possibly. Or maybe they have to go through half of it, or yeah. you know, maybe they even have to go through all of it, but they still are taken up before Armageddon. Right. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, all those those <laughs> fun those fun with, things. Yeah, with um, pre-trib being the most popular, at least it used to be, and I don't know the latest data. Right, right. But it probably still is, according to people who actually believe in the rapture. Yeah. Uh, it's just that post-millennialism has become a lot more popular and weirdly combined with charismatic Christianity. So there's a lot of, like, frothing and ferment right now, and we'll have to see where the dust settles on it. But still, there's a, there's a toxic apocalypticism there, you know, whether it involves this rapture belief or not. You don't really know what you can believe because there's so many sources saying so many different things. It's weakening trust between the media and the, the audience. I'm pretty sure that I have shared fake news. But I didn't realize it until someone corrected me. No one knows what to trust and what not to trust anymore. Misinformation, a threat to democracy, public health, and maybe even the human species as a whole. Or is it? What does this word really mean? And why has it become such a hot topic? I'm Dr. Susanna Crockford, an anthropologist who studies conspiracy theories and the ways they affect religious, spiritual, and other communities. While there is a lot of talk about misinformation floating around, there are a few trustworthy sources where you can learn what it is and how it works in yoga communities, online message boards, wellness spaces, church congregations, and of course, social media. Come for the wacky ideas about biohacking and election rigging, stay for the research on the effects of these ideas on public health and democracy. Misinformation debuts May 24th, 2024, and episodes will be released weekly. 
Find it anywhere you get your podcasts because misinformation matters. See you soon. Yeah. And, and so what I wanted to do is, as I say, you've sort of introduced this, but I would argue, I think I'm going to ask you to argue in a minute, right, that, that there's a, there are some contradictions, right, between that theology, that theology of the return of God and what that return is going to look like and what it's going to entail, and this kind of professed love for Israel, right? Um, so maybe you can talk about that. What, what are the contradictions there? Or another way to say this is sort of what happens to Israel, maybe we could say, in that apocalyptic vision, and how does that sort of cut against this, this easy notion that, that we love Israel, we love the Jewish people, etc.? Sure. Uh, well, as I already mentioned, um, you know, the, the policies that evangelicals will support, the, the kind of Israel that they will support, are policies that will inevitably lead to destabilization and violence. Um, you know, and it's not going to be just Palestinians who, who suffer that violence, though they, will, they do suffer and they will suffer uh, disproportionately. But, you know, um, evangelicals, many of them who believe in the rapture or even without the rapture, believe in a particular end-time scheme around Israel, certainly believe that uh, Armageddon will be centered there and that it will be massively destructive and that uh, you know, a lot of Jews will die in the Battle of Armageddon, and most evangelicals believe that those who didn't convert to Christianity will go to hell. There are some exceptions where, uh, you know, they take Paul's statement, all Israel will be saved, to mean every Jewish person, as well as every Gentile Christian grafted onto the vine. Um, but, you know, for the most part, they think that Jews that don't accept Christ go to hell. Um, so what they're, what they're really doing and arguing for is uh, is not going to be good for Israel. I mean, if they got their way and there was a push to destroy the Al-Aqsa complex and rebuild the temple, um, I mean, that would be all-out nuclear war. Right. Yeah, and it's it's that, all, all of that, I mean, I've, I've <laughs> once upon a time for my, my PhD, I did my, in my comprehensive exams, I did one on the book of Revelation, which is the final book in the yeah I'm the, sorry yeah it's a, it's a fool's errand right I'm going to tackle that right the the last book in the Christian New Testament that from which a lot of this theology is is drawn out and it's mm-hmm. impossible to just read that and not capture just the violent imagery right the one that I always remember is this one and it's this image of of the divine returning and like putting all the enemies of God in this giant wine press, like the kind that, you know, people would walk around in barefoot and squeeze the grapes, putting all the enemies in there and marching around until their blood overflows. And I mean, it's just an incredibly violent imagery that is mm-hmm. usually tied in with this notion that, again, speaking for a majority, it is not universal. There are exceptions, but this, this kind of dominant image that the Jewish people who will be saved by God in this conflict are those who basically renounce Judaism as having been a mistake and recognize that they, they should have been Christians all along, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, and so on. And that mm-hmm. part, it, part, part of my movement out of, of evangelicalism, I think, was also a little bit of that, of just not being comfortable with that, of saying that, that I mean, there's something about that just struck me as fundamentally... I don't, and not like fundamentally unjust or uh, or not right yeah. or, or not very holy, right? If 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 I was still going to hold on to any form of faith, it wasn't that, right? Um, yeah, I mean this um this whole idea of eternal conscious torment uh, or even annihilation of the soul, which is something that I started considering as a teenager, which is you know I guess a little more benevolent of everyone who just doesn't believe the right things, um, was also a major part of my deconstruction. I mean, I finally. 
um, I, went, I went to Christian school. I was in this very sheltered environment. But um, after my sophomore year of high school and my junior year of high school, I went to uh, – I, I attended this summer honors program at Indiana State University, and I met a lot of public schools, and I met people who weren't Christians. And, right. You know, it was kind of shocking and destabilizing to me. Uh, but I made some good friends, and um, that, I think, really – got me thinking in a less abstract way, more personalized way than before, that, um, you know, I, I really am uncomfortable imagining these people going to hell for believing the wrong things. It still took me a long time to reject belief in hell from there, but I didn't like it, you know? Right. Well, you're, you're getting into this now, and you mentioned this, um, this, this mission trip, the short-term mission trips to Russia that you took. But I was going to say, in your experience, when you were in that evangelical world, when you were living there, how central was this, this kind of end times uh, theology or ideology, these conceptions of Israel? What Was it central? Because when I was within evangelicalism, it was a really, really central component, right? There were some pastors mm-hmm. who, it didn't matter what text it was, it could be like the Mother's Day sermon, and we're going to find a way to make it about end times, <laughs> right? It could be like anything happening in the news, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comes out, and somehow that's a sign of the, <laughs> the impending apocalypse, right? For some, it was really central. Was that your experience? Oh, it was pretty central. I wouldn't say that it came up in, uh, in every sermon, but I also would definitely not say, like, Jarvis Best claims that when he grew up Southern Baptist, it hardly came up at all. I mean, okay. I, don't, I find that very hard to believe, and right. I don't want to doubt his own experience, but that would be a highly unusual experience to have in a Southern Baptist church. Right. Um, so, you know, and maybe he's a bit younger, and maybe the emphasis has shifted some, but, I, you know, certainly in the 80s and 90s, and I was in this, um, you know, though very tenuously through the beginning of the 21st century, a few years in there before I really kind of came to grips with the fact that I couldn't consider myself evangelical anymore, and then finally eventually stopped calling myself Christian really only a few years ago. Um, Yeah, I mean, end times, ideas and beliefs were very central uh, at our school, um, in our churches, not to say they were mentioned in every sermon, but yeah, they absolutely came up, and people were watching for signs of the times. I mean, I had a high school chemistry and AP biology teacher who was this sort of like weird apocalyptic evangelical mystic type uh, who was always like, you know, feeling like the Holy Spirit was telling him to do this or that, and he would start um, his classes with what he called a thought, which would be this rambling devotional. It could go on for like half the class time. Sometimes even in AP biology, which is two periods because you have one for the lab, he would take up almost the entire first period with these rambling thoughts. And he would say things like, so I had this dream, and I was before the white throne of judgment, and it was judgment day, and Christ was separating the sheep from the goats, and I was walking around and looking around, and I was so nervous because I was so afraid that some of my students might be among the goats, but then they weren't, and I was really happy about that. And he would go on and on like this, and, you know, he would talk about the genetic engineering of red heifers and, you know, uh, how sin is increasing in the world, and it must be the year of Noah because look how nice we are to gay people. And in conclusion, Christ is probably coming back this fall around Yom Kippur. (laughs) (laughs) He literally said that two years in a row, and probably more than that. And this is definitely your you know, John Hagee kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I just want to point out here that I, I really feel like that impression you just did might have been worth the, 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 the price of admission. That was awesome. 
Um, but <laughs> so, sort of related, I mean, related to that, because uh, it does show that it was this kind of ubiquitous discourse all the time. And you, you've touched on this, right? Your sort of interlocutor or the person you're responding to in these these articles. But there are those who argue and say, look, all of you, you know, mean anti-evangelical or ex-evangelical or critical of evangelical people. This is this is kind of this isn't really what evangelicals are about. You're painting with too broad a brush. This is kind of really a fringe movement. Um, would I be right to say that, that yeah, while evangelical views may be changing and it may not be the same as it was, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago or maybe even 10, that this is still a central part of the evangelical mythos or and, and the the ethos, the, the way of living as evangelicals, the way of thinking of evangelicals? I, I'm mm-hmm. gathering from you right that you would reject that notion that, that we're painting with too broad a brush and that this really isn't a part of the evangelical subculture. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. White evangelical subculture... Uh, is, for the most part, authoritarian and still very much steeped in these kinds of what I've called hashtag Christian alt facts, or Christian alternative facts. Right. Um, I mean, we have plenty of data on this, and the people who are trying to argue that we don't are making up these ridiculous statistical constructs like global evangelical community, and no one knows what that means. And it's all to distract from the fact that white evangelicals are overwhelmingly hardline, right-wing, apocalyptically obsessed Trump supporters, Um, you know, or you look at uh, certain respectable, quote-unquote, evangelical outfits like Lifeway Research at Wheaton. Now, there's a disinterested party, and, uh, you know, they design their statistical studies to uh, focus on so-called evangelicals by belief, which ignores the whole sociological context, which makes it absurd. And, and, And what this does is uh, through a kind of sleight of statistical sleight of hand, lumps white evangelicals, uh, some of them, maybe not even all of them, in with um, so-called evangelicals of color. Now, evangelicals of color do exist, but they are not the black church in America. Yes. And the, the vast majority of African-American Christians do not call themselves evangelicals. But um, they lump these things in together, and then they say, poof, look, evangelicals aren't so bad. Um, it's easy to lie with statistics, and we need to push back hard against that. So whether you do it by evangelicals by belief, quote-unquote, or the global evangelical community, quote-unquote, you know, you're not focusing on the serious problem of conservative, mostly white evangelical authoritarianism in the United States. And if you look at that data in a sociological context, I mean, the notion that this is a benign group of people who are just perfectly compatible with democracy and have perfectly principled reasons to support Israel that have nothing to do with radical beliefs, it's absurd. Yeah. I, I like that you brought that up, and, and it's, it's a big issue we can't completely dive into, but one of the themes we've been talking a lot on this on this season about is moving away from the popular conception lots of people have about religion is primarily being about beliefs, right, to looking at, at what, what do religious people do or what does the statement of certain beliefs do for them. And that's where I think mm-hmm. I think you're right. I would really encourage people if they're interested in these things to not just look at stated beliefs or you know data about stated beliefs, but look at you know ethnographic studies that spend time in evangelical churches, hearing what people talk about, right? Or mm-hmm. or, or the kinds of of interview method methodologies that actually talk to people and get beyond the you know a questionnaire that somebody can tick about things and i th- i think you're right if you start looking at, at demographic factors and political views and so forth I, I i agree i think this is very much a part of that that kind of evangelical mindset um sure and yeah. you know with that being said there are 
certain beliefs that are markers of identity. And so, and they might, and they might not match up exactly to other people's understanding of Christian theological belief, Um, you know, but the belief that any kind of queer identity is a sin, an evangelical identity marker. Um, the, The belief that nobody who doesn't accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, which cannot be found in that formulation in the Bible, right. is an evangelical identity marker. It's anti-pluralist. Um, you know, so uh, for them, the, the politics is part of the religion. You can't draw a bright line there and say, well, oh, well, they're just being politicized, and it's not really Christianity. Their whole Christianity is about political power, and yes. it has been really since about 1980. Yep. Yeah. So I, I, I often wind up saying this in my interviews because it's, it's always true, but I could sit here and talk with you about this for hours if either of us had the time, uh, but neither of us do. <laughs> so uh, what I want to do, if, if we can shift, um, but before we close out, is I wanted to come back around to your, your book that, that we mentioned at the outset. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Empty the Pews. And I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit about it. What is it and what, what inspired, I guess, what inspired it? What inspired collecting these accounts that, that, that you've collected in this book? Sure. Well, so Lauren and I have been working on this. It's really been a labor of love for, I don't know, five, six years. It's been a long time coming. Uh, and so, you know, we had the idea a good while back, uh, and we wanted to highlight the experience of the people who grew up in hardline authoritarian Christianity and um, having them kind of look back on that uh, through the lens of time with personal reflections in a way that would be, that would emotionally resonate with people because we thought it could be a sort of healing thing. And a lot of my experience in uh, building ex-evangelical community and broader ex-fundamentalist community online, largely through Twitter over the last few years, I would say does confirm that. I've, I've also learned that, you know, survivors' communities are fraught, and, you know, sometimes people will act in bad faith, and there will be unfortunate splits and that sort of thing. But still, I think to tell these stories is, is important, and the book makes a unique contribution uh, in as much as we do highlight mostly people who left religion entirely because we were frustrated with uh, books and commentary on the nuns that tended to focus on those who are still spiritual or still religious in some way. Right. And we didn't really think that was fair or comprehensive. Um, but, you know, there are also older books that collect essays by atheists that mostly just rehash the same old intellectual arguments that really right. only speak to a certain kind of person and maybe only at a certain stage in their life. So we wanted to do a literary project to capture these stories in a poignant and, and beautiful way. Uh, and at the end of the day, we've got it divided into um, a number of sections with several essays in each section. So section one is purity, culture, sexuality, and queerness. Section two is called focus on the family. Section three is called trauma and abuse in Christian context. Uh, section four is called American Christianity, diasporas, and missions. So we look at the global aspects of this. And section five is called intellectual odysseys. And, um, we had some discussions initially about, you know, how broad did we want to make this book? Should we include ex-ultra-Orthodox Jews? Should we include ex-Muslims? And initially, and we eventually decided that it could just get too unwieldy, so we settled on, um, you know, looking at former right-wing Christians, including ex-Mormons, ex-Evangelicals, and ex-Catholics, and um, putting their stories in the, the context of all these sociological things that we've been discussing, like the rise of the nuns and what that means for America's future, and like this right-wing Christian backlash that we're facing under Trump. So that's the general concept of the book. That's really great. It's it's It sounds like a really cool organization to me, because you're right. It's a, 
there are a lot of books that, that might sound similar and finding a way to sort of cut through that noise, so to speak, and do something different, I think is, is really great. And I think I think you touched on a, a thing that has it's come up in some of the interviews we've had with people. It comes up in discussions of evangelicals who who might not feel like they completely fit within their communities, but they remain there. And that is, if there's something that evangelicalism does provide, especially for those who do sort of share all those core commitments and stuff, it is a, a robust sense of community. And I think that's mm-hmm. a real challenge uh, for people in, in the kind of world we live in, for lots of reasons, good, bad, or otherwise. For people who envision being confronted with leaving those communities or being forced out of those communities, it sounds like that's something that really sort of clicked with you. And I know it has clicked with you personally, mm-hmm. right? That that need yeah, well, to recreate leaving, a sense of community. Yeah, leaving what sociologists call high-demand religions always comes with a very high um, psychological and social cost. Yeah. And you have to deal with the issue of identity loss, because when your whole identity has been defined by this authoritarian religious group, and you deconstruct that, you're then left with the question of, who am I? What do I want? And you, and you don't know, and it takes decades often to put those pieces back together and figure out, you know, who you really are. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, if, if, if I could ask, I don't want you to, to give up more than you want to, but I, I really encourage people to take a look at this this book. Um, were there is there a particular story or account in there that you would that, that really sticks with you that you'd be willing to share? Or do you want to if you want to save that for people to go out and buy it? I understand that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's just, it would be very hard to pick just one because I, I well, we had a, a number of um, submissions and uh, we chose the best ones. We also asked certain people if they would contribute something. And it's a great mix of uh, new authors and established authors. And um, so it really depends on what angle you want to you wanna look at it from, uh, because I find them all moving in, right. in different ways, to be honest. Um, you know, we have uh, Matthew Clark Davison's look back at, you know, his upbringing uh, as a Catholic and his family history, um, and tying that together with him being gay and the AIDS crisis and all. It's a beautiful, beautifully written literary kind of uh, historical exploration of him and his family's past. For example, um, we have a really fascinating essay um, by Ruby Theagaranjan from um, Singapore, writing about growing up in an evangelical megachurch there, but with American sermons on tape and American prosperity gospel books and that sort of thing. And I'm right. really, you know, interested in the, in the global reach of this sort of thing. A, a really powerful essay by Juliana Delgado Lopera called Gentrify My Heart uh, about moving uh, to a diaspora community in Florida and switching from her family, switching from Catholicism to evangelicalism, and then her dealing with her queerness in that environment. There are so many, um, you know, really moving stories here. I, I couldn't pick just one, and you know, I'm just scratching the surface. Sure. Well, let me uh, let me then steer people just as a reminder as as we prepare to to end our time here. The book is Empty the Pews: Stories of Leaving the Church. It's due out. Did you say December tenth? I think uh, uh, December fir- December first. Oh, December first. I got the one in my head. I guess, uh, and it's available for pre order now. So I really encourage people to take a look at that. Uh, also, if if they're following the podcast or interested 
to at it. Um, please, if you like what we're doing, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Straight White American Jesus on Facebook. Uh, you, if you want to support us, uh, we're now on Patreon as well. If you want to track down uh, Brad, he can be found on Twitter at Bradley Onishi. I am still not there, and so I'm, I'm an email guy, but I'm easy enough to find, too. If you just Google Daniel Miller Landmark College, you can find me. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And I, again, uh, Dr. Chrissy Stroop, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.